So, Rebecca, I have an email from a patron that she asked us to read on, on the podcast. Bring it on, brother. I'm going to read it, but first, I'm going to introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a licensed therapist. Hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist practicing somewhere in the city limits of Seattle. Okay, let's get to this email. I was, she says, and she gave permission. She actually wants to me to read it and read her name and everything because she wants to advocate for this sort of thing. So she says, I was listening to your podcast episode about sexual attraction and therapy, and it stirred up some emotions in me. I recently had a therapeutic relationship that ended because my therapist and I decided to become sexually involved. Actually, my feelings for my therapist was what led me to your podcast in the first place. I was searching for information about erotic countertransference and found an old episode of yours. I'm the kind of person who researches everything before making a decision. So before initiating the sexual relationship with my therapist, I read practically everything I could find. I was convinced I was making an informed decision and that I was consenting to what was happening. But later I realized my therapist made a huge mistake. He should have been more aware of the asymmetrical power balance between the two of us and that I couldn't possibly make an informed decision in that situation. Anyway, we ended therapy so we could start a romantic relationship outside of the clinic. I bet that went well. Yeah. I was aware of the possibility of him being someone completely different in private. I had read numerous articles describing the psychological issues that patients experienced in similar situations and I was aware of the risks we were both taking. I was aware that most dual relationships between patients and therapists result in problems and emotional suffering. I took a lot of time to think through what we would have to do in order to not have this hurt each other. I'd considered everything. I'd been completely honest. I did everything, quote-unquote, by the book. But looking back, I think that what I was really yearning for was just someone to love me and accept me without wanting me sexually. As soon as I realized that we were going to have a relationship outside of therapy, I started to feel disgusted with us. Mm -hmm. When we started seeing each other romantically, he started telling me about how much he hated being a therapist. I was baffled because this was something I, I had never thought of. The one thing I took for granted was that he would share my interest for psychology and introspection and that we would be able to talk openly about things like that. So I, find my, so I found myself in a terrible relationship with a man that I felt obligated to listen to without him ever even asking me how I was doing. He couldn't handle anything he interpreted as criticism, which was pretty much anything that wasn't directly encouraging. He said I reminded him too much of his, of his soon-to-be ex-wife, so he wasn't divorced yet, and his own analyst. Eventually, after a while, he stopped contacting me, and we broke up. Now, a few months later, I'm a mess. Bet. I'm not currently in therapy, mostly because I don't really trust that anybody will be able to help me. So recently, I decided to report him to the ethics board. Good for you. They said it could take up to four months before this has been properly dealt with. The, eth the ethics board contacted his employer, and they're doing their own investigation. 
The ethics board also informed the government, and I've been told that he will most likely lose his license. Do you have any thoughts on this? I've been thinking that I should try to find an analyst who specializes in incest victims. Do you think this is a good idea, or am I treating this whole situation as much more severe than it is? Am I overreacting? I'm sorry if this is the wrong place to ask these questions. I feel that I know enough about you to trust your skills. You've given so much good advice regarding sexual boundaries, and you've shown so much understanding of the pain of the, of the patients in these situations. Feel free to use any information I've given you, including my name. I think there are more people out there who've experienced similar things, and I think it's really important to show that there's no shame in it. I would actually prefer that you use my name. Maybe that could help others like me to feel less like they need to hide their experiences from others. Thanks again. This helped more than I expected, and I think it'll be easier for me to build up the courage to find another therapist now. Thank you from Patron Jenny. So that's the end of the email. Thank you, Jenny. That was really brave. Yeah, very brave. Very, very brave. I, I don't know if I would have the bravery to to come out like this. But yes, there is absolutely no shame in it. And the more people that come forward like this, the more it's going to help other people to come forward. I mean, my fear is that Jenny is not the first. Oh, I of this therapist. Of this therapist. Right. I think it's it's often the case. At the very least, there was a buildup to it with other clients. Right. So we call that grooming. Right. And escalation of something wrong with you. <laughs> um, so, uh, right. So there's a lot of things we can say about it. But first, let's just talk about some stats, some relevant stats that I've talked about in other podcast episodes, but just relevant here. What percentage, Rebecca, of psychologists, so this is a study on psychologists only, okay. not, not people like you and me, but psychologists, what percentage of psychologists indicate that their training was adequate with respect to the subject of erotic countertransference gonna, or when a therapist has sexual feelings for a client? Uh, well, I know in my own training it was only mentioned once. I, that's surprising that it was even mentioned, honestly. This is so, frequently and, not mentioned at all. But. Yeah, as, so I'd say very low. What percentage of psychologists would say that, Especially because that they had adequate, adequate training? <laughs> Zero. Yeah, well, close 9%. Okay. So very, I, I'm surprised 9%. And honestly, if we ask those psychologists, what do you mean by adequate? They might say, oh, someone talked about it once. But really, it should be talked about more than once. Okay, another stat here. According to a 1995 study, what rank is sexual impropriety regarding malpractice claims. Ooh, I bet it's high. Yeah. What rank would you say? Just a shot in the dark here. Uh, is it third? It's good. Second. Ooh, God. Second, second most common behind, behind treatment failure. So <laughs> yeah. tre treatment failure number one, malpractice claim. Number two, sexual Sh impropriety. Stooping your client. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good word, stooping. Um, yeah, and I think that's the charge is... Uh, First degree stooping. It should be. Mel Brooks will be your attorney. Uh, another study here. What percentage of male counselors reported having fondled Oof. or having oral genital contact <laughs> or intercoursed with a client? So we have, we have fondling, we have oral sex, and we have intercourse. What percentage of male counselors reported 
that they have done one of these things with one of their clients. I'm going to hope it's low. I'm going to hope it's like 10%. 10? That's not low. <laughs> 10% of counselors have fondled or had oral sex. Okay, well, it's lower than that. It's 3%. Oh, thank God. What do you mean, thank God? 3%? <laughs> that means for every 100 counselors, 3% of them have had, basically, have had sex with one of their clients. That's ridiculous. You and I have both been teachers. You know what percentage of folks are not... Well, I'll tell you, yeah, there's a wide variety of, shall we say, innate competence, but the therapists that I train are terrified to shake the hand of their clients, let alone have oral genital contact. All right. What percentage of women counselors have reported having fondled oral sex or intercourse with a client? What percentage of female counselors? Three? Uh, zero. Zero. Thank God. <laughs> so, so it must be zero point something, but it's, it's very rare for women therapists to stup their, their clients. It happens, but it's much more likely to be a male counselor and a younger female client. It should be noted. It's usually younger women clients. All right. What percentage of victims take formal action against their Ooh, therapist? I'm going to guess it's low because the... You must. They must be so embarrassed. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, uh, twenty-five. No, that's high. I don't know. Uh, I'll guess ten percent again. Five percent. Five percent. I'm not 5%. surprised. What percentage of victims, shall we say, clients, suffer from PTSD symptoms afterwards? A hundred percent. It's this is a huge boundary violation. Yeah. Up there with a parent doing the same thing. You trusted this person with. All your deepest, darkest secrets, and they tried to... But specific PTSD. Right. I mean, obviously, people will suffer, but what percentage suffer from actual PT, diagnosable PTSD? I would say it's very high, considering the intimacy of what happens. Yeah, it's very high. 64%, which is about two, two-thirds, which is quite significant. All right. Uh, another little fact here, again, before we go into directly addressing the email. What... Uh, you're a counselor, so you adhere to the American Counseling Association Ethics Code. Ethic, ethical Code. What do they say about having sex with a client? I hope they say you're not supposed to do it. True, they say you're not supposed to. But they say that after you terminate, there's a certain amount of time. Five years. Five years, you're right. Thank you. Five bing, years. Bing, bing. But it also says you have to document justification for actually engaging in sex even after five years. So five years minimum, but after, but you still have to document in the client file that you've consulted, you've thought about the factors, you've, you, you don't think it's going to harm that person. So I just have to tell the story. There is a very famous case of this happening in the gay community. Uh, it's, this happened long ago as I was beginning to apply to counseling programs, a very well-known therapist. And this is back when there was like eight people that would treat openly gay people and not pathologize them. A very well-known therapist uh, began a relationship with one of their clients and it was like a bomb went off in the community. Everybody heard about it. 20 years later, I was in a training with that therapist as a peer and I could not get over it. (laughs) 
like, uh, and I was like, do I tell other people in the group that this is this person? I, I was still traumatized. So I can only imagine how the person felt. I, well, I won't say anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Uh, American Psychological Association says two years. The Social Work Association says never. Yeah. Un- unless you can demonstrate that the client won't be harmed. And AAMFT, which is what I adhere to, the, M- the Marriage and Family Therapy people, they say never. They don't, they don't even say after five years. They say never. It's, it's never, ever, ever. <laughs> so, okay. And why is it never, ever? Ever. Never, ever, ever? Never, ever, ever. What, what was that song? That's Sorry, Miss Jackson. Oh, that's right. <laughs> never, ever? Never, ever, ever? Um, why are you asking me rhetorically? or? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I would say never, ever, because I know that the dynamics are so skewed. I can be so funny and so on as a clinician when I am a deeply flawed <laughs> Yeah. Individual. Right. I mean, to me, it has less to do with that. I mean, when you're dating in the first few dates, you're putting, a, you're putting your best face forward, too. So it's not like people don't become disappointed in their partners by date 10. But she, your listener, your patron mentioned that quite quickly. Yeah, right. That seeing the real humanness of her therapist was already devastating before the sexuality came right. into play. Right. The... The issue is quite subtle, and for many people, it's hard to imagine what it's like. We, even as adults, desperately need and often seek essentially mentors or people that are above us that are kind of like parental figures. You're that to me, Kirk. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And... uh, (laughs) Don't even joke about that, Rebecca. That's too much responsibility. Um, when I go to therapy, I look up to my therapist. When I am a therapist, I don't actively try to have this happen, but it's a natural part of the therapy that the clients will quote unquote look up to me, even if they're older than me. Well, and then that act of providing a safe place where that person can be witnessed, where that person can receive a, a reframing, a reconceptualization, the dynamics of power are quite intense. Right. I have seen myself be able to sway someone's deepest values. Right. And there is tremendous responsibility in that. Right. And some people will say, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, why should it be that way? And, and I could go on and on about the tradition of psychodynamic therapy, Jungian therapy, all the other forms of therapy, and just say, look, it 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 is what it is. And many therapists will actively try to demote themselves. And I will do that too as a feminist therapist. But you can never demote yourself to the degree that it eliminates that transference, that it eliminates the fact that clients come to us for care from us. We don't ask for our clients' care. The clients come to us for our care to them. It'd be the same as when you go to the dentist or when you go to, and a nurse is taking care of you or a physician. There's a, there's an innate emotional context there that is akin to parenting. A teacher, a, um, you know, I don't know. These, these roles 
play into our template as children in which we depended on our parents for stability, attention, love, care. And so even if you're both adults as client therapist, that dynamic is absolutely there. And so when you enter into a romantic sexual relationship outside of therapy, the the client is at a tremendous risk of the the amount of betrayal if it goes badly is so great that it should just never be done. The thing that I say to therapists out there that are even thinking about this is there's online dating now, fuckers. Like there's so many oppor- Do your shipping outside of work. There's so many fish to stup in the sea. <laughs> I mean, come on. Why your clients for crying out loud? Like if you're trolling your client load for potential dates like get out of the house or download tinder to your phone i mean crying out loud it's so easy these days to stuck um that you know all you need is an app and you'll be you'll have stooping coming out of your ears so if that's your thing if that's your thing so get with it people uh, so that that's just my kind of thing. It's it, why take a risk there. Um, having said that, I w- we will say that, and you mentioned this before we started recording, that there are situations where it actually does work out. I know of three situations where people have married their clients. Right, and we worked did, with someone. Did it go bad? That was the case. They were all still married. Um. You know, I can't imagine that dynamic, but it worked for them. Yeah. People get married and it does work out. Right. So, Mazel tough. Right. Fine. <laughs> but it's very rare. And why take a chance there? And maybe people think, some people think it's worth taking that chance. So, it sounds like you've done other podcasts about the erotic transference that happens within a session. Yeah. But so often it's, well, I think I'm really being seen. And I would say for the clinician to not have the skills, clearly not getting any supervision or not telling anybody that they have this level of erotic countertransference to realize that the client is playing out some issue and that the clinician is merely a screen. Right. And that you, you don't have to act on these erotic feelings because the client is working through some issue. Why is this person not getting supervision? (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's so many things we could say about that. When there is erotic energy or romantic energy between client and therapist, usually it's because a a dysfunction is playing itself out in a therapeutic way. That's an opportunity for the therapy to be therapeutic. For instance, if I had an erotic feeling for a client and or I felt romantic energy in the room, I would very quickly in my mind say, oh, this has something to do with the client's issues that's being enacted in our relationship. It's an opportunity for me to provide some healing in this area for this person. For instance, just to get specific, I might find that the client had been sexually abused by their father when they were young, or 
they were made to feel worthless and their worth was through sex or something like that. And I, or they just have a pattern of finding security in, um, shall we say, inappropriate relationships. And so what I do with that is I don't try to shut down that energy, but I encourage the relationship to become intense while having extreme healthy boundaries with that client because this is a corrective experience for this person. For them, for the, for instance, with this client, she was saying she was just looking for someone sure. to love her without sexually being involved with her. And she was confused. She, she later realized that in the moment she thought she was actually sexually attracted to him, romantically attracted to him, but later thought, you know, I think what I just wanted was for someone to love me right. and accept me without using me sexually, essentially. And to know that within the session, a lot of things are a safe place. It's a safe place to practice. Right. It's right. a safe place to practice being assertive. It's a safe place to practice being mad. It might be a safe place to practice feeling sexual. Right. But and, and, and so as therapists, we can provide a healing, corrective experience for them by letting them have those energies while upholding a therapeutic stance, which is one of caring and one of not involving our own needs in the situation, you know? So, so there's that. Uh, let's see, what else did she say here? I'm very surprised that, that she played it by the book. She did all this research prior, which is, I think, rare anecdotally. Well, and we never want to be the case that goes badly. Right. I mean, I think a lot of us have the sense like, oh, you know, I'll, like I can just say that for like my son entering middle school. I heard from everybody it was really rough. And I thought, oh, we're prepared. It'll be okay. <laughs> it literally knocked me on my ass. All I've been doing this year is helping my son adjust to sixth grade. Um, so I think this idea that like, oh, I'm prepared. I can handle this. It's really hard when you get in the middle of a kind of complex systemic situation and you know who doesn't want love right and so if you're thinking i've trusted this person it'll feel safe there and it looks like pretty quickly the situation turned and she got the whole magilla as they say i don't know why this is like turning me into like a yiddish uh phenom here but um you know, it's hard to then see the whole person. Right. And realize how quickly you've been betrayed. Right. And another part of her email here that's interesting is that they ended the relationship, the therapeutic relationship, so they could start a romantic relationship. This is very common, is that most sexual romantic relationships occur just after termination. Mm-hmm. But there's a but there's a buildup right. to terminate. They're terminating because they want to do that uh, relationship. Uh, so uh, she had the great question, do I need to work with someone who specializes in incest? And I would hope not. I don't know what the clinicians are like in your area, but I would hope that most clinicians would be able to work with a boundary violation such as this. Right. And an inappropriate sexual relationship. I don't think you have to be a specialist. Right. No, I would hope the same thing. 
you probably want to be extra careful to find someone that you think you're going to have a good relationship with. Yeah. I mean, I would be right up front in the first visit and say, this is the issue I'm addressing. I have that often. I seem to have this weird ability to attract people who are survivors of cults or very intense religious upbringings. And I'll just be right up front with them that that would be no problem yeah. for me. Right. And it's up to you, but you could even seek therapy from a man. And as long as the therapist is average and typical, then the 97% of ther- male therapists who have never had sex with their clients, then in all likelihood, it'll be a uh, safe place for you to heal from this situation. Again, if you, if I could also see wanting to work with a woman just sure. for the difference Absolutely. because she might be too triggered. Absolutely. And that's, but I don't want to say don't, don't. All men are going to do this. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> right. Um, I, hashtag woman card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so other things we can say is she said that she soon realized that he she, in her mind, and you were basically saying this earlier, was she thought, this is great. I, I, I'm falling in love with it. I shouldn't say in love, but I'm, I'm really attracted to this man. He listens to me. He's interested in psychology. He's stable, and he pays attention to me. So it's probably a good decision that we're taking here uh, moving forward. She, she's done all this research. She right. knows what she's getting into. Right. They end the therapeutic relationship, and she says instantly she realized she made a mistake because mm. he he became himself, which is someone who doesn't actually like listening to somebody, and he sounds quite narcissistic or even borderline. Actually, I mean, I can't obviously diagnose right. He's him. He's divorcing his wife. There's a whole lot of red flags. Here. Right. He he he's ha- in a vulnerable time. Right. But the key borderline symptom was that he, she says he couldn't handle anything he interpreted as criticism, which was pretty much anything that wasn't directly encouraging. This is a, this is a borderline trait when you, when you even hint at the possibility that you're not encouraging or positive, then to people with borderline traits, they will interpret that as a rejection and will feel quite betrayed and will react because of that. And I'd be fascinated for, I, I remember once there was an advertisement of uh, someone who was doing their dissertation on clients who had married um, their therapists that I, I would love to hear a personality summation of the type of clinician that begins a sexual relationship with a Right. My there. my estimation is the typical profile and research is in this direction as well, that they have a pattern of doing this, one, that it's not isolated. That if you ask anyone who has in the, they're in the midst of a relationship with a former client or a current client for that matter, if you ask them, has this happened before, they most of them will say, yes, this has happened before. So this isn't something about the relationship. This is something about the therapist. And a lot of assumptions you know, in our field, they'll say, well, obviously, 
the client must have been sexually abused. You know, that's often what's thought. So obviously the client must have sexual abuse issues and it's enacting and pulling the therapist into that dysfunction. But actually what the research has found is that the most predictive factor is in the therapist. Mm -hmm. So the most predictive factor in a relationship like this developing is has the therapist had a previous situation like this before? And regardless of whether or not the client has a sexual abuse history, that's the most uh, predictive factor. Uh, A client having a sexual abuse history is a factor, but not as much as the therapist factor. So, yeah. Um, what else can we say about it? I, I would just really encourage, uh, is her name Jenny? Jenny, patron Jenny, yeah. Patron Jenny, um, to think about the the early signs that the relationship was going this way and just to honor those early physical cues that you had uh, that basically grooming was taking place, that it, he was moving this towards a sexual relationship and just to honor this real body-based experience because some of it was emotional, but a lot of it was subtle cues that was going on and that those things will need to be unwinded, (laughs) done unwinded with your next clinician that you, you feel safe enough to work with. Right. And along those lines, you ask, are you treating the situation as more severe than it is? I would say from your email I would, it's hard to tell, but you might not be taking it as seriously as I, as I think you deserve to be taking it seriously. This is, I mean, you reported it to the ethics board, which it's is fantastic. Fantastic. Because this person would do it to someone else. Yeah. We can prevent these sorts of things from happening. Plus the guy fucking deserves it. <laughs> I, there needs to be justice in the world and keep your schlong in your pants. Yeah. Too many crickets. Um, so are you taking it, uh, you know, more severely than it deserves? No, absolutely not. This is a, this is a huge situation. It is akin to incest. It is, it, is a, it, is, it is abusive, frankly. And especially the way that it went down, as soon as you end therapy, you start to date, and then he... Well, you're ending therapy because you're planning on dating. Right. Right, exactly. And then he instantly becomes a jerk face and doesn't listen to you, doesn't ask you how you're doing, and then just basically drifts away and no follow-up, no I'm sorry, no, you know, none of this sort of stuff. This is this is this is why in our ethical codes and frankly in the law in many states it says you're not supposed to do this. It's such an obvious thing that is very risky and can cause all sorts of problems. As I said before, one study found 64% of people in your situation suffer from PTSD as a result of this. PTSD is no joke. It's not like, oh, PTSD. No, PTSD is no joke. So that means flashbacks to the situation, being triggered by sights, sounds, smells, um, Demoralization, anxiety, nightmares, nightmares, years of of tr- of trauma reactions, and potentially years of treatment to recover from that. This and 
I want to say that this is would be years of treatment to recover this level of boundary violation. Yeah, it's just. I awful. would not. I would say find someone that you want to work with for years. Yeah, and hello, make him pay for all that therapy. <laughs> if he ran you over on purpose with a car, and you had medical bills, then he should pay for that, right? So that's a civil suit. Right. So sue his ass off. Just work that into the thing. I want his house, his cars. I want his ex-wife's shit. I no, want. Don't. She's she's been through enough. The ex. <laughs> well, she married him though. <laughs> she she deserves what she. No, I don't know. All Just right. back back it up, Kirk. There needs to be justice. So, someone's got justice. Gotta, needs to be. Served. He needs to lose his license. He needs to lose his ass. He needs to lose his retirement. He needs to lose his self-respect. <laughs> he needs to. He needs something to happen to him, and by all means, come full full bore into him. And another stat to throw out is the vast majority of these cases are uh, ruled in favor of the victim because there's so clear because there's no defense. Right. There's no defense against. Well, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. No. Okay, please justify that, sir. Um, I don't have you know clear now. Actually, I think this person's in another country, so I can't oh. I can't speak to their okay. ethical codes and their laws. But quickly print out all your emails and record all data around this situation so that you have a case. Yeah, you in our country, you would have seven years to prosecute. Really. It's seven years. You have to. You, you like. No, no, no. You don't have to wait seven. You just have. I know, but it seems like the sort of thing they would allow you to do ten years later. But I don't know. But anyway. So and also again, want to just point out how brave you are and how God, thank you, and how wonderful you are and how mature you are and how giving you are to say, look, I want my name to be out there because I want to step forward so other people can step forward. Part of this has to do with the fact that other patrons, other listeners have written in and told similar stories. And so to stomach, some extent, this podcast is becoming a mini movement mm. for people to come out with, with this information and to spread the word. Yeah. I mean, so boundary violations are common and to abuse power dynamics are sadly common as well. Yeah. And many people get into this field unconsciously uh, because they feel like, you know, that they have something special to give and they'll be such an amazing rescuer. Um, and so if you feel like your clinician is really off base, please say something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the very least, say something to your therapist. I, I heard recently from a friend that her male therapist touched her in a way that not sexually, but he put her hand, he put his hand on her back, sat next to her on the couch as a way of trying to soothe her Mm. and put his hand on her back. And although that can be very therapeutic and, and can be quite uh, loving as a thing to do, she did not interpret it that way. And I just think, and, and then she, and then she was saying, well, and I don't know if I should, I don't know, should I terminate with him? I, and I'm and I'm listening, I'm like, yeah, you should terminate with him. He he didn't intuit that 
you would be creeped out by that. Why do you? Why would he do that when he doesn't know the answer to that question? Mm-hmm. The the relationship has been permanently damaged. Right. I mean, if you can bring it up and talk about it and and repair the relationship, then fine. But the way she was telling the whole story, I was just like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, and you should run for the hills. And therapy is supposed to be at least the one place on the planet that you should feel the safest regarding this sort of stuff. And if you don't, then fight back, clients. Tell your therapists that you that they did something that made you, you know, this, the, I guess I can relate because as a person who goes to massage therapists, mm-hmm. they'll tell me if, so they'll say, how hard pressure do you want? And I'll say, yeah, I want it. I like it pretty hard because I, I hate it when it's really light. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. It's just like, it, it feels like, what are you doing? Like, get in there, you know, give me some therapeutic value here. But there's also some times when they'll be particularly, they do this thing on my neck sometimes where they kind of, they're stretching out this muscle on the side of my neck and it feels like they're ripping off my head and it, and it, it one strip of skin at a time and it hurts. And I want, while they're doing it, well, <laughs> I'm having a lot of thoughts. One is, is Kirk, this is the time you're going to say something. Just say it hurts. You know. Oh, you don't speak up. Well, this I'm is a, like me lying to the dentist. Right. One, I'm a man, and I've I've been taught to not complain about such things. Japanese, so I've been taught not to complain about such things. And and also, I, I don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, I, I want I want to be I want to be a hundred percent behind whatever they do. So I understand the weird uh, complex that we all have, perhaps that we don't want to hurt our practitioners' feelings. We don't want to insult them. And um, so, so I get it. But we should all, and I say this to myself every time, Kirk, you should say something. Mm-hmm. The massage therapist wants to know. They want to know when you're bothered. They, they'll be happy. They're used to it. Just, just say something. If the massage therapist or the therapist can't react well to feedback, then screw them. You know, they they should be professionally trained to handle that kind of information. And if they're trained in brief therapy, they should ask you at the end of every session, how's it going? Did I do anything that creeped you out, right. for instance? <laughs> um, so anyway, I don't know how we got on that topic, but um, but yeah, uh, it's good if for you. you see something, say something. Yeah. And good for you, Patron Jenny, for bringing this forward. You're a brave person, and I really, really hope the best for you. I really hope that you can find another therapist that has a good approach. My assumption, I mean, my assumption is no matter what therapist you find, there's a high likelihood the therapist will have good boundaries with you. Whether or not that therapist is the best relationship to heal you from this trauma is I would I would maybe shop around for that. Right. And also that your transference towards your next therapist might be very high. You might get very angry at them because it wasn't safe to get angry at your last therapist. So right. just expect a little volatility. And find a therapist that is trained or competent in that. The the what I might ask your if you're looking for something maybe to ask, but it's usually a vibe you get from people. I would look for someone that makes you feel very safe, someone that makes you feel cared about, uh, someone that makes you feel as though they care quite a bit about you and, has, and doesn't have uh, 
a shred of creepiness to them. I don't know how exactly, but, but one thing you can ask is, or look for is whether or not they believe in the therapeutic relationship as a therapeutic tool. If you say that phrase, there are some therapists that actually don't believe that, you know, particularly cognitive behavioral therapists, Mm -hmm. staunch cognitive behavioral therapists will not, they'll say they don't believe that. And frankly, even brief therapists will, will say they don't believe that. Um, but what I think you need is is a reparative relationship with a, with yeah, a therapist. Someone who can address deep issues because you've been wounded in a deep place. Yeah. This is probably not a brief therapy issue. Right. Because uh, really of the grooming process, although the breakup feels like it was one of the great disappointments, as you get into the deep work the process of grooming, there'll be a whole level of grieving right. that happens. Yeah. The more, so getting back to what sort of therapist does this, and I don't have any research in front of me around this, but I've thought a lot about it. <laughs> and what I think is that the typical therapist that does this has a characterological personality issue of some kind. Oh, the person who violates a boundary like this. Right, right. The, the therapist who does this sort of thing, I think has in all likelihood traits or full-blown narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, or frankly, even antisocial, I suppose. And the people I know who have done this to the point where they've married their clients, there's a level of sweet cluelessness (laughs) and everlasting optimism. In the victim? In the perpetrator. Oh. Like, they just seem so sweet and nice. From the outside. From the outside. Yeah. Right. Now, this isn't probably every client therapist situation, but the ones that I've seen, the, the, the main thing to me is, in my world, in our world, in our field, for a therapist to go down the thousands... <laughs> go down. Yeah. <laughs> oral genital contact, as we talk about. To go down the thousand steps necessary to end up in a situation where you're having sex because it's not like you just slip and fall and suddenly you're having sex with a client you have to go through so many tiny little steps in that direction each one of those steps is a why in the road where you can veer away from it Mm -hmm. to make every single decision in the boundary violation direction you have to have something quite significant about your personality that dictates the ability to have that decision. To me, I would, it would go against every fiber in my being to have a thousand of those decisions. Maybe I could make the first five out of the thousand, but by the time, but as it went down the road, it, it would, it would, it'd be akin to me strangling a puppy. I, I can't do that. Well, and as someone that's not as pure and wholesome as you, Kirk, I would say <laughs> that uh, for me... So you have strangled a puppy? <laughs> is that what you're saying? I have not, actually. Uh, but as a clinician, you have to check yourself. I have to check myself so often in a session. What am I saying? Why am I yawning? Why am I thinking about food? <laughs> 
why am I so uncomfortable? Why is my shoulder seizing? Like right now, why am I spending so much time talking with my clients about my upcoming move? Is that about them? Is that about me? Um, you know, I'm evaluating my behavior much more than than the average worker does at their job. Oh, yeah. And so to add in there, you know, should I begin making moves on my client? What should be the first move? Did they just make a move on me? But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of missed signals. Yeah. Right. There. And so for that data to go in your head as a therapist of, wow, we've just made 500 steps. We're halfway there mm-hmm. to having sex. For the data of that to go in a therapist's head and to not say, wait a second, there is another human being here besides me. There's another person that could be harmed by this. And I need to be careful. Well, and that's one of our first tenets is do no harm. Right. So if I was this, uh, if I was patron Jenny, I would ask my next therapist, who are you a sociopath? (laughs) I would say, are you getting supervision? Good. Because one of the number one... Or a consultation. A consultation. Are you alone in this or are you beholden to somebody? Right. And bound- or are you in therapy? Yeah. And boundary violations happen when clinicians have let go of those tethers, when they're no longer in their own therapy. Right. I do know the statistic that most boundary violations... Do you know this? What time of day... Most boundary violations happen in the clinical session. Afternoon? Late evening. Oh, okay. So it's the last client of the day. You're tired. You know, so this client, patron Jenny, might want to see a clinician early in the day. I mean, if you (laughs) want to think about what are the subtle things to do. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, if, If the therapist is that vulnerable, meaning I better not... You know, if you're thinking, I better not make an evening appointment with this therapist because that's when they're more likely to abuse me. I would say just switch therapists <laughs> because, uh, but yeah, it, you know, your point is that for us as therapists, when we become isolated from consultation, supervision, therapy, and when we're tired and not our, at our best, we're more likely to commit boundary violations. But but again, I just have to think, and, and this is the first time I've really even thought out loud about this, is the the sort of person that, cause, you know, from a client's point of view, it's like, well, I'm having feelings for my therapist, and, I, you know, it feels good, and I want to pursue that. So for the client, it there's, there's nothing about the client that needs to have a personality issue. Sure. But for a therapist to to knowingly go down a road for such self-interest. That's the point. It's like right. they're doing it because they're, in, you know, it's sort of like... Well, as Prince would say, you need another lover like you need a hole in your head. <laughs> right. The, the, the metaphor would be, I'm basically asking this person to play Russian roulette. Now, yeah, there's a chance that this could work out and, and be the best decision, but... There's also a very good chance that I'm handing this person a gun with three bullets in it, and I'm asking them to spin the wheel and and take and pull the trigger. That there's a very good chance that this could be very bad for this other human being that I care about. 
for you as a therapist to knowingly hand that gun to that client and have them put it to their head means there's something about you in all likelihood that you just don't really actually care about other human beings, which is a characterological issue. Right. So this makes me think about when I taught case consult, I actually had a list of like top 10 boundary violations. And at the beginning of every semester, I would have us read it to each other as a group because boundary violations happen. When they happen, clinicians get embarrassed and decide to tell no one. And this idea that, like, you got to have someone that you can tell that you're heading down a slippery slope. That's important. Right. And when we talk about it, it reduces the likelihood of these sorts of things happening. Well, Patriot Jenny, thanks for writing in. You're, you're very brave. And I'm sure other listeners very much appreciate you stepping forward. And I hope other people can as well. Let's, let's raise awareness about this. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. If you haven't already, please become a patron like Patron Jenny. You could be as good as Patron Jenny by becoming a patron of this podcast. That does it for the episode. Thanks for joining us. Please take care of yourself because... You look marvelous, darling. Ha, ha, ha.